Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Nailed It Orthopedic Podcast. Guys, we are so glad that y'all been hanging in with us. The ratings are doing great. The reviews are doing awesome, uh, and we're still growing, so it's, it is awesome. And for those who are new, I am Jay, and I have with me my co-host. Got Dr. Cole here. All right, and we got another great episode in store for you guys. Uh, you know, I was actually in the middle of uh, trying to get all the edits and the notes together for this show. And I was looking at, uh, it's, it's Sunday. It's, it's Sunday. It's uh, football Sunday, man. Uh, Cody. It's are back. You, it's back, man. You, you, uh, you're in new Orleans, right? So, I mean, you gotta be with the saints. You gotta, you kind of have to ride with the team down there. Well, you know, you know, the thing is, cause you know, I'm from Atlanta and, uh, <laughs> and you know, I'm, I'm a Falcons fan. But when you come out uh, to yeah. come out to new Orleans and you tell people you're from Atlanta, Oh man, like you know, all the football fans, you know, they, they just automatically upset. But I will say, you know, the culture behind this city and the Saints, uh, it was like you know, almost everybody knows almost the entire roster of the whole team, which, which I thought it was interesting. But you know, everybody here, they they love the Saints. You know, they rally behind the games. They really support the team and diehard fans. So, you know, I like the Saints and I like the Falcons. Is it is it a crime to like both? But just like the Falcons a little bit more. I don't know, man. This kind of is a crime to like the Falcons. I mean, they they kind of suck, but no, I'm man, just kidding. Yeah, school in Atlanta, man. Yeah, yeah I did, I did. But you know, I'm, I'm from Alabama. Everybody who know me, you know, I'm from. I'm really a Southern boy from Alabama, and you know, we don't have a professional team, but our college team runs the uh, college football. You know, so everybody roll with the tide where I'm from, and yeah. all the listeners, like 95, 98 percent of the listeners, even though all I said was roll tide, they know exactly which team I'm talking about. So, uh, you know, oh, yeah. there it is. That's all I got to say. Uh, but it's good thing that we're even talking about sports because I think the guest that we have on for this show, he has a tie to some of the sports teams out there in New Orleans. So I'll let you get into that, Cody. Oh, yeah. We have Dr. Choate, who is going to be our guest for today. We're going to talk about rotator cuff tears, primary rotator cuff tears. And uh, he does a great talk. We even talk about some of the arthroscopy and the, and the diagnostic arthroscopy and, you know, the portals to use for, to do uh, one thing versus another. And we talk about physical exam findings. We did a, he does a, an excellent job. Um, just a little bit more about Dr. Uh, Dr. Choate, Stephen Choate. He is currently the team physician for the New Orleans Saints, uh, as well as Delgado College and a lot of different high schools here in the New Orleans area. Uh, he got his medical degree from the University of Tennessee College of Medicine. He did his internship and residency at Ochsner uh, Clinic Foundation, which is right here in New Orleans. And he uh, later on completed a fellowship in sports medicine and shoulder reconstruction at the Stedman Hawkins Clinic of the Carolinas. Um, so, you know, he's very well accomplished. He is, did a great job on this podcast. So we hope you guys enjoy this episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Choate, welcome to the Nailed It podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. We are looking forward to having this talk and getting to know you a little bit better and then talking about some primary rotator cuff injuries. So welcome to the podcast. Great, guys. Thank you for having me. No, no, no. Again, thanks for coming. And, you know, generally how we like to start this off is just asking a couple of questions, getting to know you a little bit better as a person. 
So um, kind of the first question we just have is, uh, I think Jay may actually have a question for you. Jay, yeah, I do. You have a, yeah. Some questions? Yeah, for sure. Dr. Schultz. So, you know, the at this point, our listeners know you're a sports medicine, uh, sports medicine trained orthopedic surgeon. So uh, how is that? I guess, how's your, your, your work day and like how much trauma are you taking and how much uh, work kind of outside, even outside of sports are you doing? And, and plus, I guess, as well as just the, your regular practice of your, the sports patients that you see as well. How, how is that on the, the daily basis? Uh, well, you know, it depends on the time of year. So I, you know, I, I, as a sports doctor, I take care of, you know, athletes of, a variety of different types and, and, you know, baseball players, basketball players, football players, I'd say the majority of my practice uh, tends to focus in on football and baseball. So uh, football is a very busy part of the year. Um, you know, sports doc covers, you know, games all throughout the year. There's a lot of, of what we do that's not in clinic uh, in terms of coverage of games. And, you know, um, you know, it's a very different type of practice during that time of year versus sort of the remainder of the year where you see, at least in my practice, where I see fewer of the football injuries, you know, from January uh, through the summer or the early part of the summer. So um, I would say that the, the, the sports trauma uh, mm -hmm. in terms of the multiple ligament knee injuries, ACLs, traumatic shoulder dislocations are much more common, um, you know, July through December. Um, yeah. You know what? I, 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 okay, I'll just be honest. I probably was being a little selfish with that question. I, what I was trying to see: do you do you still take a lot of trauma call, Doctor Show? And the reason oh, I okay. ask that is because I'm I'm one of those people who, you know, probably like trauma a little bit better than some other specialties. But he's too too scared to commit to trauma just yet, and yeah, he may go into something. Issues. <laughs> They yeah, different first. So I was just wondering, how is like uh, taking trauma call for the uh, sports doctor at this point? I see. I got it. All right. Well, yeah, you know, it depends on where you're in practice. I mean, where I am in an academic environment, I'm lucky because I have a couple traumatologists who are, who want to be busy and who are busy. Um, and I, I end up not really to have really having to take a whole lot of the actual trauma trauma call. Um, I do. And, you know, we split it up in our practice. So I'm probably on trauma call you know, once every six weeks or so, okay. uh, which is really, really nice. Okay. It's not bad. Um, second question we got for you is what hobbies, what hobbies, excuse me, do you have outside of work or things that you like to do? That's not, um, necessarily orthopedics. Yeah. I would just say my time out of work is honestly more just spending time with kids We go outside, we hike, ride bikes, you know, I, I, you know, work out, try to, stay fit, the whole thing, but uh, we travel when we can, you know, those are the big things. Right. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I think that's all good. And, um, last thing we, we have is, um, so we, we have a, a lot of listeners that are, you know, some are, a lot of them are, may still be residents. Uh, we have some med students listening as well. Um, but you know, for those that may be considering sports, we know you work with, um, some of the, some of the football, some of the pro football teams, um, kind of how'd you get set up with that and, and what is it, you know, really like working with the sports team, I guess, or your experience, how that's been. I, I was fortunate enough to have trained in a place where, uh, you know, I, I had mentors who had covered pro teams in the past. So I kind of came in to practice with some experience on this and, uh, you know, was presented with the opportunity to cover the saints. And, um, you know, it's, it's a really uh, privileged position to be in, to be able to interact with pro athletes 
and to kind of participate in their care in that in that environment. You know, I would say, you know, as with everything else, that there's some unique challenges with it. Um, you know, and learning how to basically, you know, communicate and to take all different aspects of their care into consideration. And, you know, there's definitely a sense of urgency, you know, in everything that we do right. in that world. And and so that's that's something that's very different from what you experience covering, you know, amateur athletes is there's there's a lot less, I would say, urgency. So uh, there's some good and bad that comes along with that, but um, you know, um, I, I find it to be a way more net positive than negative. Only in that, you know, it just makes you a much better surgeon, a much better doctor, because you always have to be on top of your game, so to speak. You know, when you're working right. with these guys. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's it's a lot of fun for sure. Oh, that's great. You know, that's one of the um, it's one of the things uh, a lot of people, you know, eventually or thinking of wanting to do so hearing you say that and that you enjoy it and that's a you know a great experience that's uh that's that's promising to hear that's great um so anybody listening interested interested in sports you know that's there, there you go um so let's go ahead and hop into the topic of the day which we're kind of going to talk about primary rotator cuffs um but we just have a general case here um that we'd kind of like to start off with so say you get a a uh, 24-year-old male who walks into your office, said he plays sports, he played football, and he was uh, running, got tackled the wrong way, and said he has a shoulder, said he had a shoulder dislocation that's self-reduced, and now he just has shoulder pain that hasn't really gotten any better. Uh, what are some of the things that we want to be on the lookout for on history of physical exams? And I know this can present in many ways. This is just one of the ways that um, rotator cuff injuries can present. But, you know, in general, what are some things we want to be on the lookout for? Yeah, so that, that's a good question, a good case and something I see a good bit in season. So, um, you know, I, I like to get good history in terms of, you know, did the patient or player have any pre-existing problems with the shoulder? Um, and if not, you know, talking about more specifically the injury event itself, get a bit more detail regarding kind of how the injury occurred. You know, was it a contact injury? Was it more of an indirect type of mechanism? Um, sounds like in this case, it was more of kind of an anterior subluxation, self-reducing type of instability event. I like to confirm that it was anterior. Sometimes you can see in linemen when they're blocking, they'll kind of slide out the back. Uh, that's much less common than the anterior injury, maybe in a linebacker, but I like to find out if this is a one-time event or if they've had prior problems. Um, certainly, you know, did they need any help getting it back in? It sounds like in this case they didn't. Did they continue to play throughout the game or the practice or whatever else? Did, did they come out for just a series and go back in or did they have to come out of the game completely? Um, and then, you know, so if you have an older patient that comes in uh, to my clinic complaining of, of pain, and by older patient I mean, say, someone that, you know, age sort of upper 50s to low 70s or older, um, one of the first things we think about is potentially a rotator cuff tear. So we teach our residents and our fellows to try to think demographically. And so the most common thing is you get older that can cause pain would be a rotator cuff problem. So, um, you know, the things I want to know is number one, you know, how did the pain start? Was it acute onset with some sort of traumatic event, such as maybe a fall off of a ladder or is it more insidious onset, meaning kind of developed over time slowly? Um, 
also also want to know, you know, has one how long has it been going on, and has there been prior problems? Obviously, prior surgery, prior treatment, anything that would indicate more of a chronic issue. Um, night pain is one of the more common symptoms of a rotator cuff problem, particularly uh, even when you're not lying on the involved shoulder. Uh, you know, pain at rest um, is is pretty common. So uh, that's one particular question we ask. Um, I also like to ask about um, any subjective weakness. Um, typically, um, larger rotator cuff tears will present with not only pain, but also uh, difficulty with overhead activity and subjective weakness. Um, you know, you always want to keep in mind that there can be other sources of shoulder pain from, in terms of other potential causes um, that, that don't involve the shoulder. So one of the more common things would be neck, neck uh, pathology. So I always uh, encourage our residents and fellows to ask specifically if there are any radicular type symptoms down the arm um, or any coexistent uh, neck pain uh, that goes along with the, the shoulder pain itself. Um, and then lastly, uh, not to skip around too much, you, you want to ask about uh, particular, you know, things that obviously make it better or make it worse. Classically, rotator cuff tears are worse with activity and in particular heavier lifting. Um, uh, overhead and things like that. So you want to kind of sparse that out as much as you can in the history. Yeah, so I think that was great. Just the fact that we were able to go through how this can present in someone a, a tad bit younger coming in after a sporting event or a sporting accident now complaining of, the, of this shoulder pain versus someone who might be a little bit older and might have a more insidious, insidious type of uh, presentation. And, and also you mentioned a couple things that I thought were also high yield. Uh, you mentioned about night pain. And uh, what if you hear that in your clinic, I mean, does that have any significance to you as far as uh, sometimes where you may go with treatment or anything like that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I know there's, there's studies in the past that have sort of suggested that nighttime pain is a poor predictor for non-operative treatment in terms of success and, and, and cup pathology. So, you know, that, that sort of speaks to you know, how significant uh, the problem is to the patient. You know, typically nighttime pain that then disrupts sleep is, is poorly tolerated. So a lot of rotator cuff um, treatment strategies uh, as it relates to non-operative treatment in terms of physical therapy, you know, there's evidence to show that if, if a patient doesn't have good a good attitude about the therapy or maybe doesn't have as much confidence, confidence that it's going to work, then a lot of the times it doesn't. So at least in my practice, I found that if, if the night pain is significant, uh, the patient typically is a little less optimistic about therapy, and they're a little bit more prone to want to maybe explore surgery as a right. treatment. Okay. And other than that, I know you also just mentioned neck pain, which we don't really have to get into too much. But just like you said, I think it's so important to uh, kind of remember that as a possible cause of some of these symptoms, too. So uh, also have that on your differential when, when thinking about these injuries. Um, so moving on to physical exam, what are some of the things that you're looking for on physical exam to, to, to kind of rule in this rotator cuff tear? And we can even do how we did before with the younger patient versus the older patient, if there is any difference at all. Yeah, sure. Um, well, you know, younger patients, again, I, I would focus in on maybe more of the overhead athlete. That's just where I, I would typically see a cuff problem. Um, you know, those patients are very distinctly different in terms of how they present. And so take, for instance, maybe a college baseball player who's got shoulder pain. Uh, typically, it's pain more towards kind of the back part of the shoulder, or what we call the lateral subdeltoid recess. And it's typically 
kind of in that late cocking position uh, of the shoulder when they're getting up to throw. And, you know, the things I'm looking for would be um, loss of internal rotation. So I, I think I mentioned before, um, you know, undersurface partial thickness cuff tearing of the cuff occurs uh, more commonly in a setting called GERD, mm-hmm. which is glenohumeral internal rotation deficit that Dr. Burkhardt out of San Antonio described. And so what happens is you get kind of a paradoxical sort of shift of the humeral head posteriorly during the throwing motion, and it, it leads to an abutment of the actual posterior cuff up against the posterior superior glenoid. So things you're looking for on exam in that type of athlete would be loss of internal rotation motion. Does the total arc of motion of the shoulder, how does that compare to the other side, the non-throwing side? Um, and obviously weakness, although weakness is less common in that population. If you look at an older population, it's a different presentation. Typically, it's, you know, you're not looking at range of motion as much. Um, it's more, okay, how's their overhead range of motion um, uh, terminally, but more, how's their strength? So, you know, you do what's called a, a Job's test where you, you know, empty can, thumb down towards the ground, the arm in the scapular plane, you have them resist your downward force and see, number one, does that cause pain? And number two, do they have weakness with that? Um, Similarly, you want to isolate the infraspinatus, so external rotation with the arm at side. You know, if, if they resist that, with you know, do they have weakness? Do they do they have any pain associated with that? Um, I would say clinically, probably one of the more important things, particularly for the older population, is you're trying to assess cuff tear repairability. So there's some signs of irreparability clinically, and so every time I see, say, I have somebody comes in and see me with a cuff tear and it's older. I, I, you know, one of the first things I'm looking for are signs of reparability. And so those signs are if, if the shoulder, the person, when you have them elevate their arm above their head, if they hike their shoulder, then that sort of suggests that the force couples in the shoulder are disrupted and it's a pretty large tear, which may not be repairable. Um, there's something called an external rotation lag sign. So if you, if you bring the arm out to the side and you externally rotate passively, and you have the patient try to hold that position. Um, if they can't hold that position and they, they and when you let go, they lag, their, their arm, their hand comes towards their belly, that's a positive lag sign, which suggests that the, that the cuff is not going to be repairable. So those are probably the big important things. The other things you want to look for would be coexistent pathology, which commonly the biceps is irritated. So you want to palpate the biceps. Uh, you want to do what's called a biceps tension sign or a speech test to see if the biceps is irritated. You want to look for AC pathology, see if they have any tenderness or pain over the AC joint, which can, you know, occur with the rotator cuff tear. And then finally, you just want to make sure that their overall passive range of motion is okay. Sometimes you get some stiffness from the rotator cuff. You can get what's called a secondary adhesive capsulitis, particularly in diabetics and people with hypothyroidism. Um, so you want to make sure that their overall passive motion is still pretty good. So. Great. No, I think that was I think that was excellent. Um, for physical exams for the shoulder. So just to recap, you know, we kind of spoke about, um, you know, the first thing is just kind of inspection, making sure everything looks okay, you know, just looking for symmetry. I think you spoke about palpation in that subdeltoid recess is one place, um, you know, the AC joint, the bicipital groove, they have pain there as well. Uh, You spoke about the range of motion. You want to check their internal and external range of motion. And then for the strength testing, um, I, I want to see if this is a good way to think about it because now, now I kind of think about it as when you're doing your strength testing, you're testing like your, uh, your rotator cuff muscles. So like you said, for the, inf- for the supraspinatus, you're doing your resisted empty can of your Job's test. For your infraspinatus, you're testing like the strength of external rotation with the arm adducted. 
do you do like the horn blower for the Terry's miners or, or the, any of those subscap, you know, like the lift off or the belly press or the bear hugger for, um, the scups, the subscap, uh, uh, tears. Are you routinely yeah, doing all yeah, that? Yeah, I do. No, I'm not routinely doing all that. I mean, as okay. you see, you get into practice that you only have just, you know, sometimes five to 10 minutes to spend with a patient and get a full history, do an exam and, and kind of formulate a plan. So you kind of have to be very goal directed with each sort of exam, you know, maneuver you do. And so, you know, I, I, I never do a horn blowers. Um, you know, the only time that's really helpful is if you think it's a massive tear that may not be repairable, sort of same type of thing. Okay. Um, but with the, the subscap, you do want to evaluate that. So if, if you have an MRI that shows maybe a subscap problem, um, I try to get a sense of whether the subscap is functional or not before surgery. So, you know, the belly press test is probably the thing I'm doing the most commonly. Um, that kind of tests your your um, your upper subscap. The, 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 the lift off is kind of more lower. Uh, and then you got the bear hugger. Um, so I, I don't usually do lift off much. I just kind of get try to get a quick assessment on whether they can do a belly press test or not. Um, I've just in my practice noticed subjectively it's not all that reliable. Right. Um, in that you can have you, you can have a, a patient that's got an upper subscap tear uh, and still perform all three of those tests successfully. You know. Right. Okay. So those those tests are helpful. They're helpful if it's a really big subscap tear. You know. Um, but you can have small tears that you end up repairing that don't really show up on that exam. So. Right. And, and do you do like the, the test for impingement, like the near the Hawkins or, um, or is it, I mean, I guess some of those are kind of covered with range of motion. Um, I guess kind of just like what you just said, you kind of do a direct, you know, kind of a focused physical exam. Yeah, I, I do a near and Hawkins. I, I would say, you know, it's interesting that those are designed to kind of elicit, outlet impingement type symptoms and and so it kind of gets at why you might have a cuff problem right so there's different reasons intrinsic versus extrinsic pathology the extrinsic would be okay is there a spur a bone spur that's kind of punched down on the on the superior cuff and causing the tear usually there's something you can see on imaging and you can do a hawkins in in an ear to see if that causes pain but it's interesting most people have shoulder problems at all typically test positive with those maneuvers you know so um, I find it to be a little less helpful. Um, so, uh, I, I will do it just real quickly. I maybe do a Hawkins just to see if that generates some mechanical complaints or some popping. Um, but you know, most of the time it, it's sort of a secondary test for me, you know, kind of an afterthought. Okay. Right. And so I think that's pretty good. Uh, I, I think it is probably good for everyone to to look up all these special tests that we're mentioning and not only know how they look or know how to do them, but know how to uh, explain them. Because when you're reading the question, a lot of sometimes you may have a picture, but you might not. They Sometimes they I've noticed in some questions, they actually just uh, describe the technique and you have to know what test they're talking. They, they won't say that they're doing the, the liftoff test. They only describe uh, the the motion that they're doing. You have to know what they're testing and things like that. So something to keep in mind and uh, look out for our show notes. We'll kind of explain a little bit more into some of that. Uh, But to take a step back, Dr. Chope, before we hop into imaging, which I I think sometime may be the next step in this type of uh, clinical pathway, can you just tell us what's the the purpose of the rotator cuff and uh, what muscles are involved and things like that? 
Yeah, sure. So the, the rotator cuff is, you know, classically a, a concavity compressor and a kind of humeral head depressor. So basically, I the way I explain it to patients is, you know, the shoulder is very much like a golf ball on a golf tee. Um, it doesn't have a lot of intrinsic stability like maybe a, a hip joint would. So you need the soft tissues around the shoulder to provide stability and function. So the rotator cuff is a big part of that. So you've got the subscapularis up front, and you've got the supraspinatus, the infraspinatus, and the teres minor. So they all kind of work together to basically, you know, compress the humeral head into the glenoid and to help provide dynamic stability. So uh, they all kind of function differently, So, uh, and they kind of function together. And so probably the, the most important concept when it comes to rotator cuff anatomy and how, how it works is, you know, we talk about the suspension bridge concept that Dr. Burkhardt talked about years ago, where basically, you know, you have attachment points up front and in the back, very much like a suspension bridge, you know, cables and the shoulder has to be very well balanced. And so you have what we call force couples. And so basically you have both what we call transverse and coronal plane force couples. So think of it like the deltoid is going to elevate your arm up, right? It's force couple up. The supraspinatus kind of helps push things down. And that's, that's kind of a coronal plane uh, force couple. And then you have the axial plane, which is sort of the subscap and the infraspinatus. And they basically work together. And it's, if you have any large tear in any one of those spots, it can disrupt the overall balance of the shoulder. And, and so that's kind of how it works. Um, they're, they're innervated by different nerves. Um, and, um, you know, certainly you have muscles that are involved too. So sometimes we'll see in big cup tears that the muscles can atrophy. Uh, which can affect both function and, and cause pain. So um, that's, that's the basic review. Uh, one thing that I would like you to kind of just touch on, because I never really got this concept until not too long ago, but is a rotator interval um, and kind of what it's like, what it is and like the importance of it in, you know, when we're talking about rotator cuffs. Yeah. So, you know, the rotator interval basically, is a confluence of tissue that kind of sits between the supraspinatus and the subscap. So when you're looking at a shoulder cadaver or you're looking at an actual shoulder, there's there's sort of, you know, the thickened sort of aspect of the supraspinatus tendon and, and the subscap. And then between it is this combination of the SGHL and the CHL, the coracohumeral ligament, um, to kind of connect the two. And then, the, of course, the, the biceps tendon kind of comes up and crosses through the, the rotator interval. So, um, you know, as it relates to, to rotator cuff tears, um, you know, honestly, to be honest, when I'm, when I'm scoping a shoulder, and this, this is something that some surgeons do and others don't, but if I'm going to repair a cuff, oftentimes I'm actually taking a shaver and I'm, I'm kind of taking out part of the rotator interval. The, the rotator interval is not really a structure you need as you get a bit older. And, Oftentimes it becomes thickened and, and adhesed and scarred down and, and it can limit external rotation. So when I'm doing a cuff repair, I'm, I'm actually taking part of that out to improve my post-operative motion and kind of limit stiffness. So as it relates to shoulder function, as you get a, a bit older, it's, it's just not that important. Um, and it can be a source of pain if you don't address it because a lot of times you get inflammation in that area. Um, and if you, don't, if you don't address it, it can continue to be a, a, a source of pain. So, okay. all right. Well, I think all the anatomy, you know, there are some, some questions that come in 
that come into uh, play with some of these review uh, articles and things like that I've been reading. So I appreciate you going over that. Um, now back to and, our, and let me can, yeah. can I add can I add one more point about that about Absolutely. the uh, rotate interval? Sure. So so when you have a big cuff tear and you're treating it surgically, one thing you need to do is sometimes mobilize the tissue really well, and and to do that to get the tissue back down to the footprint, you have to take the rotator interval out. You have to do what's called an anterior interval slide. And so hmm. that, that would be one important sort of note would be, you know, to properly mobilize some, some of these cuff tears arthroscopically, you have to just excise it completely. So. Okay. Yeah. And that, and that was something I didn't even know at all. So that's, that's uh, something I'm going to have to go read about, <laughs> but Move, moving yeah. back to the uh, to the case that we had going on earlier, uh, you know, that patient came in, we got a good history, a good physical. Uh, we kind of have an idea now what we think may be going on. What images are we going to get on this patient? And also, as we're going through it, can you also say what you would be looking for specifically in these uh, these images as well? Yeah, so, you know, uh, you start with an x-ray. Um, just like everything else in orthopedics. So you're looking to see, you know, is there any evidence of arthritis in the glenohumeral joint or the AC joint? Uh, you're looking for acromial morphology to see if the acromion has, you know, on a scapular wide view, is it downslope? Do you have a spur that's there that could be an outlet impingement type of source of pathology? Um, you're also looking to make sure the humeral head is centered up on the glenoid, on the vault, uh, both on the coronal um, and on the axial view. So in the coronal view, you want to make sure that it's not, the humeral head's not high riding, uh, meaning it's not too far up towards the acromion. Um, there's a number we go by, so seven millimeters is classically the number, which is the measurement distance-wise between the undersurface of the acromion to the top of the humeral head. If it's less than seven, it typically suggests that there's a big, a, a very large rotator cuff tear and possibly something called cuff tear arthropathy. Um, on the actual view, if you see that the humeral head is not centered up and say it's a little bit posteriorly subluxated, that suggests, again, that it's a big rotator cuff tear and that it may not be a repairable type situation, that it's more of a chronic large cuff tear problem. So that, I would say those are the biggest things. And then after the x-ray, obviously your money is in the MRI. Um, you know, tell patients, look, we can't see soft tissues on an x-ray. You have to get an MRI to see that. And so, you know, MRI obviously will elucidate, you know, how big the tear is, where the tissue is, how far retracted it might be. And those are the things I'm looking for is number one, you know, you know, you can get a generally pretty good sense on the sagittal and on the axial, whether it's just a crescent type tear, or if it's more like an L shape or a reverse L shape type pattern, you can see which tendons are involved, how far the tissue is retracted. And I would say the most important thing to look for is really signs again of, of irreparability. Um, and so what, what that is, is, there's something called a tangent sign. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. Have you guys heard about this? No, I have I not. No. Yeah. Okay, so a tangent sign is basically where you're looking at a sagittal cut through the shoulder and you take the most lateral cut where the scapular spine meets the coracoid and you're looking at the supraspinatus fossa. And if you draw a line from the top of the scapular spine to the top of the coracoid, and the subscap, this could be the supraspinatus musculature is below that line, then it, and I know that's confusing, maybe it's hard to visualize, but again, the most lateral cut on the sagittal where the scapular spine meets the coracoid, you draw a line from the top point of each of those structures, 
if the supraspinatus is below that line, it's what we call a positive tangent sign, which means it's, a, it's an atrophied cuff, which numerous studies have shown that actually predicts irreparability of the cuff. Um, yeah, if, oh. it's, if it's negative, it means if it's negative, it means that the muscle is above that line. So you have plenty of muscle bulk. You don't have as much atrophy. Um, yeah, I'm looking at some images now. But, it's a good. Um, yeah, I never saw that, but I, I like that. I'm gonna use it. Sounds smart. <laughs> yeah. The, the other thing we're looking for is fatty infiltration. So with large cuff tears, particularly in older patients, if the if the tissue has not been attached to bone for years or months muscle when it's not under tension will start to replace itself with fat. And so on a sagittal T1 weighted sequence where fat shows up as white, you're looking at the infraspinatus. And so there's a grading system for that. So if you have a certain amount of fatty infiltration on that grading system, it's called Gatelier grading. If it's three or four grade out of four, um, then that also is, a, is an indicator that maybe the tissue is not that repairable. Or, or if you get it repaired, it may not heal. And so, you know, really with an MRI, you're looking at tear, you know, size, you're looking at tear type, you're looking at how far it's retracted, tissue quality, you're looking at fatty infiltration, muscle quality, and you're looking at all these other signs. Um, so it's actually a good bit of information you can get from it. And do, do you use ultrasounds when you're, uh, when you're diagnosed? Like, is that a routine part of your practice or, do you, you know, is that something that can be helpful? That's a great question. I, I do not. Uh, you know, ultrasound is very operator dependent. I would say if you're very facile with it, it's more economical to use an ultrasound um, to look at these things. The problem with ultrasounds, I would say, is that it's harder to assess other coexistent problems. So uh, you're not going to be able to kind of assess maybe the biceps intraarticularly, or I personally think you have a hard time, harder time assessing those things we talked about about the fatty infiltration and the tissue right. sign. You're not going to be able to assess with a with an ultrasound, so it, it it has its limitations. I would say an ultrasound in my practice, where it becomes potentially useful, would be in say maybe a, a patient who's had a rotator cuff tear that I've repaired, and I have them come back, and for whatever reason I may be concerned about the the the, the repair integrity. You know, you can put an ultrasound on the shoulder and get a good sense of of how it looks uh, without having to order a repeat MRI. Um, right. Yes, but, sir. Um, otherwise I'm not really using it that much. Yeah. I know some of our, um, our sports guys, you know, after they've done a rotator cuff, they'll, they'll get ultrasounds to and measure the thickness of the, of the rotator cuff or of, of the repair afterwards, or, you know, they, they may get serial uh, ultrasounds afterwards instead of getting MRI. Uh, but kind of just to recap what you were saying, you know, for x-rays, uh, one of the big things you want to look out for, you know, on a scapular view is going to be the kind of the shape of the acromion, if it's hooked or if it's flat or, you know, because that could be contributing to any it, extrinsic causes of, uh, you know, impingement or it could be, you know, contributing to, a, you know, a, a supraspinatus tear or something. Um, and then on the MRI, you know, you look for are on the T1, you can see fatty, fatty infiltration as a Coutier, I probably mispronounced that, but um, that Coutier classification. Coutelier, yeah. that's what I meant to say for, right. for uh, on our T1s yeah. and our T2s, kind of looking at um, the size of the, of, the, uh, of the tear as well as, you know, um, any tendon retraction or anything. And since we kind of just spoke about one of the classifications for the fatty infiltration, I think this may be a good point just to, move on and um, 
kind of discuss if there's any other classification systems for rotator cuff pathology that we should be familiar with? Uh, you know, just you, you'll maybe get tested on the Cofield classification as it relates to just hair size. It's just a simple sort of small, medium, large, massive. So if it's zero to one centimeters in size, it's it's a small. One to three would be medium. Three to five would be large and greater than five is massive. Um, I've seen that maybe in a testable type situation. Um, other than that, that you know, I, the only thing I didn't mention that that's maybe had a bit more intention lately that you might get tested on is something called a critical shoulder angle. I don't know if you guys have heard of that, but basically, uh, it, it's you know you're measuring the degree of lateral overhang of the acromion. Um, so just like everything else, God made people differently. And so the acromion can be more laterally overhung in some people. And so it's, it's an angle subtended by sort of the, if you draw a line from the top of the glenoid to the bottom and a line from the bottom of the glenoid out towards the lateral edge of the acromion. The larger that angle, the higher the incidence of rotator cuff tearing and the higher the risk for cuff re-tear after repair. And okay. so there's a number, so 38 degrees is is a cutoff number in the literature. So if, if your critical shoulder angle is above that or at that range, then that's deemed to be high. And um, that that means basically the patient's at, at a much higher risk for having a cuff problem versus if it's in the 28 degree range, that's that's more of a normal or low range critical shoulder angle. And we, we, we don't see cuff pathology as much in that type of, you know, number. So they may test you guys on that. Yeah, I think um, I think actually the first time I, I I did clinic with our chairman, um, you know, we had a shoulder X-ray up, and he was asking me all these different questions. I was like, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. But he was actually talking about that um, that critical yeah. angle that you that you're speaking of. Um, so yeah. you know, that's definitely something to look up, um, listeners, if you if you are unfamiliar with what it is. Um, Jay, go ahead. I hope this guy don't look don't listen to this episode. That's gonna be a funny one for y'all to discuss. <laughs> it's gonna be funny for y'all to discuss it. But uh, anyway, <laughs> you know, actually, there's... one thing I wanted to add um, is we talk about bursal sided tears versus articular sided tears, and that's um, that's something that that I always hear get thrown around a lot. So that's a good thing to uh, to mention. Jay, go for it. <laughs> no, that's it. I was mentioning it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so, so bursal sided tears are more commonly associated with sort of the external impingement type of problem. So think of it like if you got a kind of a big hook of an acromion and a spur there, that's going to kind of dig into your cuff with overhead motion. And so you'll see bursal sided problems with that more commonly. And so sort of the the cutoff in the mind is always classically three millimeters or more. So if you've got intraoperatively, if you think it involves three millimeters or more of the depth of the bursal surface of the cuff, that's one that you would repair rather than just kind of clean up. Articular sided tears are way more common and we see that more frequently. And I think that's more kind of indicative of kind of intrinsic type cuff pathology. And, and again, along those lines, you're on your imaging, you're looking to see what percent of the actual footprint is involved. So classically, if it's more than 50% of the footprint, that's a type of tear that's high grade, partial, and one that you would want to repair. Uh, so if you're going to do surgery, so, you know, the average sort of medial to lateral footprint, you know, width 
based on anatomic studies is anywhere between 12 to 16 millimeters. So if you say 50% of that's, you know, a minimum of six millimeters. So classically the testable answer question, you know, the testable uh, question is, you know, what constitutes a high grade partial thickness uh, undersurface cuff tear and it's anything greater than six to seven millimeters of exposed footprint. Does that make sense? Based on those anatomic studies. So. Yes, sir. Those are the most, those are the most important numbers I would say with both of those, you know, issues. Okay. All right. Well, okay. I think that was, I think now we finally, we went through all the, <laughs> the classification that we wanted to go through and things like that. But moving to treatment at this point, and, you know, I think the, the treatment can be so broad depending on the, the patient and uh, everything, all the surrounding factors that that's involved. So can we talk about who gets non-operative treatment and who gets operative treatment and what, uh, what, all, what does all that entails on both sides of that as well? Okay, yeah, sure. So, you know, Almost universally, for the most part, any of the partial thickness cuff tears, uh, you know, usually the indication is to do non-operative treatment out of the gate. Um, and, you know, only rare circumstances, you know, if it's high-grade partial, maybe in a young person who's symptomatic, maybe it's near full thickness, you might consider surgery. But in that scenario, that's one you would treat non-operatively. Um, and, and usually the focus of the non-operative treatment is you know, physical therapy to strengthen the rotator cuff, to work on the muscles around the scapula to sort of stabilize the scapula, um, anti-inflammatories to help with, with pain, obviously, um, and sometimes injections. And typically injection would be a steroid injection to calm down inflammation. Um, another scenario in which non-operative treatment is sort of preferred would be, you know, full thickness tear in, in a much older person who's a lower demand uh, type situation. So somebody maybe in their early 70s who has a relatively new onset of, of you know, uh, shoulder pain, MRI shows a chronic degenerative type rotator cuff tear with some fatty infiltration, signs of chronicity, that's somebody you would generally want to treat non-operatively out of the gate, uh, just because a lot of times you can live with that type of tear um, as you get a bit older and doesn't necessarily require surgery. Um, there's some other things of interest with non-operative treatment like PRP, stem cells injections, things like that. There's really no definitive evidence that those, those, uh, those interventions really are any better than just the traditional non-operative measures, um, and they're fairly expensive. Um, so at least in my practice, uh, that's a pretty rare occurrence that we're, we're doing a biologic-type injection for non-operative treatment. Um, but that, nonetheless, that's maybe a consideration. Right. Uh, you know, the ones that you want to fix would be, you know, the full thickness tear in an active young person, for instance, maybe even if it wasn't a result of an acute injury, they come in, say it's a 55-year-old uh, laborer with a full thickness cuff tear. That's a tear that more, more likely than not, greater than 50% chance it's going to get bigger with time. And it's a much more manageable tear to deal with earlier rather than waiting. A, a bit later. Um, obviously, the kind of the classic testable question would be maybe a younger person that falls from a height or has some sort of discrete injury and has a full thickness traumatic cuff tear from an avulsion. That's also one that you'd want to treat surgically right out of the gate. 
uh, rather than waiting because the healing rates are a bit better if you get to that sooner rather than later. So um, I think that pretty much covers it. Right. Perfect. So um, non-op treatments, you know, these are going to be our partial thickness tears um, in our, you know, this is going to be the kind of the first line uh, of treatment. You kind of start off with some activity modification as well as some like local uh, local modalities. I know we spoke about different types of injections and ice and NSAIDs. And um, I think you, you touched on PRP, but, you know, generally it's not something always done kind of just due to how expensive it may be as well as the data behind it. Um, but then you get those patients of physical therapy too. Let's say we have our patient that has failed non-op management. Um, can you kind of take us through kind of the arthroscopic approach of how we would undergo surgical treatment, like, you know, which tears are we going to repair versus which tears, um, if they're partial thickness, so we just debris and do a subcorneal decompression, et cetera? Sure. So, you know, surgically, on the day of surgery, the first thing you want to do is, once you get a patient asleep, is just do an EUA examination on anesthesia. You want to make sure the patient's not stiff. If they can't get full passive motion on the table, you want to make sure you manipulate them and get that motion back right away. Um, sometimes you can pair that with the lysis of adhesions and take down some scar and some do some capsule releases at the time of surgery to make sure their motion's good. But basically, the idea is you, you pop your scope in and you look at the, at the rotator cuff from the undersurface. And again, for those partial thickness tears, you're trying to assess you know what percent of the footprint's involved. So again, if you think it's greater than 50%, and that can be sometimes a difficult thing to judge intraoperatively, so that's why you want to, you know, really critically look at your MRI before you go in, because that can kind of also be a data point to try to determine whether it's high-grade partial or low-grade. But if it's more than 50% involved or greater than 67 millimeters footprint exposed, and that's one that you would want to repair. And so there's different approaches to that. You can do what's called a transtendinous repair. Um, where you basically keep the lateral part of the footprint intact, but you just drop an anchor through the cuff and tie sutures down over the top to, to repair it. Or you can complete the tear with a shaver or with a knife and then just repair it like a full thickness tear. And I would say almost universally, I'm doing more of the latter rather than the former, um, just because uh, it's been my experience, if it's a high-grade partial, that the rest of the cuff tissue is usually not that great in terms of health. It's just better just to kind of clean it up and repair it as one big unit. Um, so you've got sort of that aspect of it. For the full thickness tears, you know, um, kind of the things you're looking for, and I alluded to earlier, is, is just, I'd say the number one thing, number, you know, several principles to, to surgical repair of cuffs and goals. And I, I would say number one goal is you want a stable construct. Number two goal is you kind of want as much footprint coverage as possible. And number three goal, which maybe be kind of the number one goal in terms of your starting point would be you want to make sure you recognize the tear pattern properly. So there's different tear patterns with cuff tears. Not all cuff tears are the same in terms of pattern. And so you have to recognize the pattern to properly reduce the tissue to the footprint. And it's not unlike, you know, a fracture surgery, you know, a distal fibula fracture. You know, you want to anatomically reduce the bone, right? It's the same thing in shoulder cuff repairs. You want to anatomically reduce the tissue. So, for instance, a, a crescent-type tear is a different pattern than a reverse L. And so the best way in my practice to assess these things is I, is I make a, a lateral or a posterior lateral portal and I actually put my scope in from the side 
rather than from the back. And in viewing from the side, you can really see the anatomy and the cuff tissue a, a bit with a, a little bit more clarity. Um, and so uh, that's one trick I've found that's been very helpful. Uh, the other thing that can be very helpful is finding the scapular spine uh, arthroscopically. That, that's sort of the separation point between the supraspinatus and the infraspinatus muscle. And so that can help you sort of delineate what's supra and what's infra, uh, and then thereby kind of showing where this tissue would go back down to the footprint. Um, uh, I think I can talk more. I could talk for an hour on things to think <laughs> about to, in terms of, so I can keep going here, but th guess, th those are kind of the big things. So, right. so your yeah. thing is you look, you view through the posterior lateral portal. You think that gives you a, a better view of the cuff. Um, when you're doing, if you have a partial thickness tear, you know, you can do trans tendinous or you can complete the tear and repair it. Uh, you typically will complete the tear and repair it. And I guess another question I had is, you know, when you, are you using single row sutures versus kind of like double row uh, when you're repairing, you know, these different types of tears? Yeah, that's a really good question. So that this is one thing that you'll you'll get tested on and asked about. There's numerous studies that look at what are the potential benefits of double row over single row and does it make a difference? So basically the best data we have is that double row almost universally for all tears tends to lead to better healing for the most part than single row. The question is, does it lead to better outcomes? And so the answer, if you take all all tear types into account is really no. The only time that double row is better than single row in terms of outcomes, generally speaking, is for large rotator cuff tears. So that sort of three to five centimeter size tear. And so, you know, generally speaking in my practice, I'm almost always doing double row. And, and the reason for that is I recognize what the data shows. But for me, I, I do think you know, if you can get maximum footprint coverage and you can improve your healing rates, then it stands to reason that the patient theoretically could do better. That just has not been shown as much in the literature. And so um, for me, there's different types of double row repairs. And so there's, you know, what we call a transosseous equivalent double row where you're tying a medial row and then you're taking your sutures down to a lateral row um, to kind of compress the footprint. Or you can do a knotless double row, something called a speed bridge, uh, where you, you basically pass big heavy tape suture. You don't tie immediately. You just kind of pull everything laterally. Um, the, the time I would do a single row would be in a situation where you have a very large rotator cuff tear, where you have to do what's called a medialized repair. Sometimes you can't get the tissue all the way back over on the footprint. And so you have to medialize the repair and get kind of a, a partial footprint coverage. And that's one where a single row does a bit better. Um, or you get a scenario where you get a patient's got a very small tear. Um, and, you know, you, maybe you're not as worried about footprint coverage. And you can just do a single anchor and tie sutures off that. So I would say my practice is 90% double row and about 10% single row. Right. And so just to recap that, you said you're using single row for very small tears or very large tears with limited mobility, you know, greater than four or five centimeters. And you you advance that and kind of, you know, at least try to get some partial coverage over the footprint. 
And for most others, you're doing the double row, you know, which you can do different techniques. You can do the transalsis equivalent with sutures, or you can do a knotless double row. I'm sure there are many more um, techniques uh, that are that are written up out there, uh, but to kind of just generalize that. And so if you have a, like a supraspinous tear with an associated subscap tear that you noticed on MRI and they had kind of, you know, a, a slightly positive uh, belly press. Are you repairing the subscap first or, uh, you know, kind of what, what's your, what's your thought process when you go behind that? Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, I, there's more and more evidence to show that repairing subscaps uh, when you can is, is a good thing. So I, I think, you know, the way I was taught in fellowship is that rotator cuff tears really come in two different varieties. One is the tear, they almost all involve the supraspinatus, and the tear will go either anteriorly or posteriorly. So it'll start at the supraspinatus and go posteriorly towards the infraspinatus, and that's where you see these crescent-type tears and reverse L-type tears. If it goes anteriorly towards the subscap, um, then that's a very painful situation for the patient and a little bit less well-tolerated because it involves the biceps, the subscap fibers kind of come over the top of the biceps, over the kind of the the the, uh, the ligament that comes over the top, and so when the subscap upper border subscaps involved, the biceps typically is not stable in its groove, which is very painful for patients. So I, I have a very low threshold. I, I do what's called a posterior push pull maneuver in surgery, where if I pull back on the arm and the and the subscap lifts off its footprint, say it's not retracted from its footprint, but it lifts off then that can be consistent with a concealed tear of the subscap, and I repair that. So my right. indication to repair subscap tear is, obviously, if, if the tissue is torn and retracted, you repair it. But if the subscap lifts off its footprint because it's been abraded from the biceps, I would repair it then. And I'll just add that I would say in 99% of my cuff repairs, I'm taking the biceps and I'm, I'm cutting it, getting it out of the shoulder. And part of that's just, uh, I'm a byproduct of where I've trained, but in my experience, the, the biceps is very much inflamed and, and part of the pathology and the pathologic process with cuff problems. So um, we talked about the rotator interval earlier and how close the biceps is to all these structures. If you do a cuff repair and you leave the biceps in the shoulder, you know, if it's not a problem right after surgery, it's going to be a problem years down the road. And so that also plays a role. So you kind of have to have a very close eye on the subscap because I think in the past that's been under-recognized as a a source of pain. So, um, and you're saying you use that, that push pull. Um, and so that's, if you're looking at it and you're looking at the bursal side versus if you're like looking at through the posterior portal, you, you'd be able to see the articular side a little bit more. Is, Is that right? That's a good question. So that's actually when you're looking in the joint from the articular side. So when you're when you're in the joint, you're looking around the front. You'll you'll see the subscap come up. There's something called a comma sign. Have you guys heard about this? So this is where if you get a subscap tear and it and it retracts, the the CHL and the interval tissue will kind of drop down and form a little comma. Um, okay. That doesn't always show that that that's indicative of a of a subscap tear. But there's also something called kind of an exclamation point sign where if you don't have that upper, that tight upper border of the subscap where it inserts, uh, that's also indicative of a tear. And so you can have that tight upper border, but when you pull, so to make this more clear, when you're looking from the back towards the subscap, if you pull back on the arm, 
sometimes you can have subscap tears where maybe you don't have that comma sign, but that the upper board of the subscap peels off its footprint. It's okay. called a concealed tear. It's been described in the literature. So you basically, and usually it's from the, from the biceps. So what happens is when you get a supraspinatus tear, the biceps becomes unstable in its groove and it acts a little bit like a guillotine. So it kind of scissors at the subscap over time. And when it scissors at the subscap, it kind of peels it off its footprint. And maybe the subscap doesn't retract, but it just peels it off in such a manner that when you pull back on the shoulder in surgery, the subscap, instead of fo the subscap following the shoulder, it lifts off out of place. Uh. It's, and so that's not something that's taught much, but that, that, can be a pro that, that most certainly can be a problem. And so that's the type of tear you would want to repair. Um, because subscap tears typically progress at a much higher rate than supraspinatus tears in terms of tear size progression. So, and it's not as well tolerated with non-operative treatment. So, um, does that make sense? It's hard to explain without a video. Yeah, uh, I think it. I think you did a good job with that, sir. I I was going to ask yeah. also, how often or do you ever do any open rotator cuff repairs at this point? I. I I've maybe done, I've been in practice 10 years. I've probably done one or two. So, and usually it's in the setting of adding in a, a patch, um, so, so, some sort of dermal allograft to sort of augment the repair. And even now I probably would do that case arthroscopically. So I, I, I don't really do many open or open cuff repairs. Um, it's sort of interesting to note that if you look at the literature, the outcomes for arthroscopic, mini open and open are pretty much the same. Uh, assuming you don't take down the deltoid from the acromion, so um, you can do you can do a good mini open cuff repair. So okay, and um, and I guess wrapping up here about the massive uh, rotator cuff tears or kind of the irreparable um, cuff tears. Like I know you kind of talk about different uh, like tendon transfers. Um, can you just quickly like touch on that and you know, when you do one versus the other, like the, you know, I know you always hear about the lat dorsi or pec mage or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, if, you know, classically the test the question would be, you know, you know, you got an irreparable superior rotator cuff tear, you know, supraspinatus, you know, a lat dorsi transfer would be sort of the treatment for that uh, versus an irreparable subscap repair, a pec major transfer would be the treatment for that. Um, I, I don't see as many of those. I would say that you, know, you guys may be familiar with the new sort of super capsule reconstruction. So the idea that if you have a you know an intact subscap, a repairable or intact infraspinatus, so you have that that force couple there, but an irreparable supraspinatus, you can do what's called a super capsule reconstruction, where you basically take a dermal allograft, you anchor it to the glenoid, and then you anchor it to the humerus, and it forms, uh, basically, it's like a tenodesis effect. It helps hold down the humeral head long enough for the deltoid to basically help elevate the arm, and it's sort of gained popularity over the last five years or so, five to ten years. And so that's an option. I would say, for me, I don't do a lot of tendon transfers, but the FCR is an option in a young person that maybe is not a candidate for reverse. If it's if it's somebody who's a little bit older, I would say 65 and above. If it's irreparable and they need surgery, then I'm usually doing a, a reverse shoulder replacement for those. So you really have three options depending upon the patient. Okay, and I guess lastly, what what 
what is your usual post-op protocol for these patients as well, since we, we know that's an important part of management at this point? So you, you try to not take a one-size-fits-all approach. So you try to tailor your, your, your rehab based upon the patient, you know, how compliant you think they're going to be, how big the tear was, what the tissue quality was like, how do you feel about, you know, the, the strength of your repair, things like that. But generally speaking, um, I have people in a sling and a pillow for about six weeks, and I'll go a little bit longer than that if it's a big cuff tear. Um, for my small tears, small to medium-sized tears, kind of a one to three centimeter size tear. I'm starting passive range of motion right away and I start active motion at about the six week mark. Uh, if it's a large tear, massive tear, then I, I'll delay the passive range of motion and really not do a whole lot of actual early motion for about four weeks. And then I'll start the passive motion after that, maybe start the active motion at about eight weeks, seven, eight weeks. Um, if you look at the data, and this is again a testable question, would be is, is there any difference in a, in a delayed passive motion program versus an early active motion, excuse me, early passive motion program? So delayed meaning you don't do anything for six weeks, early meaning you start passive range of motion right away. The data shows that in the early passive motion group, you get better range of motion at three months, but that at one year, the group's the exact same, both clinically and in regards to cuff retear. So the evidence shows that really, whether you do delayed or early, there's really no difference. And so my philosophy is if it's somebody I'm worried about, I kind of shut them down for about six weeks and just kind of, they may get a little bit stiff, but, but knowing at one year, they're going to do the same as an early passive motion person. If it's somebody that I want to kind of get going quicker, then I'll start passive motion right out of the gate and, and, and do more of an early passive motion protocol. Regardless of group, you really don't start any cuff strengthening stuff until about 12 weeks post-op. And that's kind of a universal type of deal. So, Okay. Yeah, I think this was a, a great talk. I think we covered a bunch of high points. At least, at least if people are doing questions, I think we covered at least 30 or 40 questions. I think this was great. Um, you know, uh, we really appreciate you coming on and, and talking about uh, primary rotator cuff injuries and, and how to manage these and, and different um, different uh, pearls, like, you know, that exclamation point sign, which I didn't even hear of, but you kind of spoke about the comma sign, and, you know, different types of uh, different types of single row versus double row techniques, one of debris. So I think this was a, a great talk. Um, any anything else or any last words that you'd want to add for anybody listening uh, listening in about uh, rotator cuff um, primary rotator cuff tears or anything? Yeah, I would say the last thing I, again. I, I see a good bit of this, and uh, you know, to the older patient, just remember that these things are very common, and I try to counsel patients on that. There's numerous studies that show that as you get older, if you're above the age of sixty. 30 to 50% of patients have significant cuff tearing on an MRI. So I always try to mention that to patients and, and try to make them understand that not every cuff tear requires surgery. And so that's, although we're surgeons, we love to operate. And certainly, you know, that's always my goal to get in the operating room. I, we, you know, it's important to maybe educate your patients on that fact. So um, thank you guys for having me on. This has been fun. Oh, yeah. And, also, before you go, Dr. Schultz, is there a way that our listeners could reach out to you if you have like any social media or a website or email address or anything like that that our listeners could reach out to you with? 
Sure. Yeah, I'm not. I'm. I'm not quite of the millennial generation. I haven't hopped on social media quite yet. Uh, no Twitter accounts, Twitter handles, or uh, I think I do have a Facebook page. But I would say you can email me. My email address um, at work is Walter uh, dot Choate C H O A T E at Oshner. So it's O C A O C H S N E R dot org. Um, you can you can email me at that address. Um, and I'm, you know, more than happy to answer any questions or provide any further information, you know, regarding my experience with this. And, you know, if you, if you guys are in town, New Orleans, you want to come spend some time with me, I'm always happy to have people come chat over and spend time with me in the OR clinic. So. Well, Dr. Cho, it's been excellent again. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. This one featuring Dr. Choate on rotator cuff injuries and we hope you guys enjoyed it and learned a lot about it and if this is your first time listening to the podcast please hit that subscribe button and go leave us a review in itunes or whatever you're listening to this on and also if you have made it this far to the end of this podcast tag us in a post on instagram or on twitter and we will repost you we want to reward you for being a loyal and dedicated listener and listening all the way to the end. So until next time.